Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Three things that have different functions but are tied together to fulfill their purposes, ears and noses and throats. Oh my. Tonight, On Call with the Prairie Dock, celebrating our 20th season. Hello, I'm Dr. Kelly Evans-Hollinger, tonight's host. We are celebrating 20 seasons of On Call with the Prairie Doc, delivering truthful, tested, and timely medical information. Continuing that tradition is our goal for tonight's discussion. Joining us in our studio on the South Dakota State University campus in Brookings is Dr. Thomas Tamura with Midwest ENT and Allergy in Sioux Falls. Welcome, Tom. Thanks Thank for you. coming up and joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you bet. So um, ENT or otolaryngology, which that's like the hardest specialty. Exactly, absolutely. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about what an ENT specialist does, what your training path is. You do surgery, do you clinic? What, absolutely. What, what's the mix of what you do? Sure, so after medical school, um, ears, nose, and throat or otolaryngology, it has, usually there's about a five-year residency with mm -hmm. that. And for me, the attraction to that is really that there's a nice balance of medical, meaning having long-term care with the patients, but also having um, taking care of their, their surgical problems within that head and neck area mm -hmm. there. So there's really a good balance of, of seeing kids, adults, lifestyle problems, but also cancer and, and more serious problems. Yeah, great. Well, we look forward to answering your questions about ears, noses, and throats. Call 1-888-376-6225, send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org, or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. Each night we work to answer as many of your questions as possible given the time we have for the episode. To encourage you to submit your questions early, those of you who ask a question during the first 20 minutes of tonight's program will be entered into a drawing for one of our Prairie Dot gift items. The winner will be announced at the end of the program. Your question will remain anonymous, but be sure to provide your contact information when you submit your questions so we can contact the winner. Well, let's start with some basic ENT stuff. So uh, probably a really common thing you see is kids problems. So we think of kids with lots of ear infections that come and see you or sure. kids with lots of tonsil infections that come and see you. Let's start sure. with ears. Sure. Like when, when should a pediatric patient be sent to an ENT specialist for sure. their ears? Yeah, so generally looking at the guidelines when, mm -hmm. we, when we see kids with ear infections, it's most common in that first year of life, but certainly it can extend into those first couple, you know, three, four years are the most common times. Generally, we want to see around three or four infections in a six-month period. Um, and when we're getting to that point, we start thinking maybe these kids would benefit from some more aggressive intervention, maybe some ear tubes. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, a lot depends on you know, the symptoms that the patients are having and how sick they're getting and how many treatments they've had as well. Got it. What sets up kids for more ear infections? Are there reasons that some kids get them mm -hmm. and others don't? Sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
In general, the most common thing is there's thought to be an anatomic problem, and the anatomic sure. problem is that that middle ear space, so the space behind the eardrum, mm -hmm. is not draining as well, and and that goes back to you know the, what we call the eustachian tube. For what adults think about, it's if you're on a plane and you're going up right. and down, you hear that popping or cracking. Mm -hmm. In kids that are prone to ear infections, that tube tends to be a little bit more horizontal and shorter, mm -hmm. and most kids do outgrow their troubles, meaning as they get older, it becomes more vertical and longer, thereby allowing that middle ear space to ventilate better and less likely to plug up and have an ear infection. Mm -hmm. But some kids get a lot of them mm -hmm. and then they end up in your office. Mm -hmm. What do you tell parents about tubes? What are the sort of pros and cons of tubes sure. and, and when do you really strongly recommend sure. them and why? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, in general, the big pros are, um, a patient patient comfort and yeah. a lot of times in kids that age it also relates to parental comfort a lot of these sure. patients have really restless nights and they're not sleeping mm -hmm. well and and many times you know getting the tubes in the, the patients in general have obviously have frequent less frequent ear infections excuse me right. but also are, are sleeping better through the night there mm -hmm. the other thing that patients or parents don't always think about in that a lot of times these patients chronically have fluid or other things behind the eardrum that are mm -hmm. not only causing discomfort but also potentially causing hearing issues so mm. children that have lots of ear infections tend to be at higher risk for having speech delay yeah, speech like yeah yeah got it um, and what's the surgery like how long is a kid asleep sure. um, for surgery sure. are there any complications to worry about sure. or yeah it, it is a really simple procedure yeah. overall meaning in adult patients we can actually do it in the office but kids obviously can't got sit it. still for that so mm -hmm. in general there's just a little bit of mask anesthesia so usually no IV or intubations required and then I look down with a microscope at the eardrum small incision mm -hmm. of the eardrum put tubes in my portion probably takes at most five minutes going to sleep and waking up a lot of times around 10 15 minutes or yeah. so so the risks otherwise there is a small risk of having a persistent hole in the eardrum sure. um, which would need a second procedure to fix. Mm -hmm. um, the other things that can occur, some kids do still get infections, especially if mm -hmm. they have a lot of nasal congestion. Mm -hmm. The benefit with the tubes in place is that you'll see ear drainage coming from the ears. Sure. And instead of systemic antibiotics, again, again, some topical eardrops usually clear things up pretty, pretty quickly. Right, right. And then instead of that, that pressure of the fluid building up and mm -hmm. causing all that pain in the, in the middle ear, it's got a, an outlet, it comes exactly. out, and, and it's probably more less uncomfortable for the patients, mm -hmm. too. Okay. Well, we've got a bunch of questions, so Absolutely. let's just get to some sure. of them. All right. Um, we have an email from a 60-year-old woman who says, in the last few months, she seems to get a lot of bloody noses, mm -hmm. often in the evening, a few times a week. She's able to stop the bleeding by laying down and putting um, a tissue in her nostril. What might be causing this, and is it related to the dry, windy weather? Yeah, absolutely. In South Dakota, right now, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, nosebleeds are certainly something that that are that are very common yeah. throughout patients' lifetime. There, mm -hmm. um, the nose anatomically, the the front part of your septum, which is the middle portion of your nose, there, okay. um, there's a plexus of vessels, meaning blood is coming from actually five different areas there, and not only that, but it's also an area that tends to dry out. So mm -hmm. there's the structure of it is cartilage, some blood vessels, and then really a thin layer of mucosa over there. So if any area can get you know, dry and cracked, and, and, and certainly I think a lot of us have experienced that, mm -hmm. it, it's common there. So 80 to 90% of nosebleeds occur in that front mm -hmm. septum portion of the nose there. So mm -hmm. dryness is a big factor there. So mm -hmm. a lot of times 
you know, where we first start is, is trying ointments or, or, you know, something as simple as Vaseline yeah. um, in the nose. Um, other higher level treatments involve coming to see um, uh, primary care physician or ear, nose, and throat, and we can numb up the nose and cauterize any vessels that are okay. more problematic. There. If you've got a lot of bleeding exactly. or if, if exactly. it's heavier bleeding, do things like humidifiers or mm -hmm. saline sprays help that too? Absolutely. Yeah. The more moisture you Moisture's can have good. there, it's certainly the better. So a humidifier in the mm -hmm. bedroom or a room that you're spending a fair deal of time on absolutely yeah. helps. Yeah, good. Common problem though. Absolutely. Um, we have a caller who said her grandson was diagnosed with a peritonsillar abscess. Mm -hmm. Can we explain what that is? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, so a peritonsillar abscess, so your tonsils sit in the back part of your throat mm -hmm. there, and a peritonsillar abscess sits in the pocket of where the tonsil is, so between the lateral wall of your throat and, and the tonsil. So in general, these unfortunately can be very painful, and, mm -hmm. the, and the classic presentation is that uh, patients have a, a hot potato voice, so it almost sounds like they're talking over over something. So they have a muffled voice, and the general treatment for these is drainage. Yeah. And depending on the age of the child, sometimes it's something they need to go to sleep for. Yeah. Most kids that have this are in later adolescence, so it. it's something that can get drained in the office. Yeah. And it's something that, as a primary care doctor, mm -hmm. this is always something that kind of I think about or scares me if someone comes in with a sore throat that's beyond the typical or has some of those symptoms. Mm -hmm. and it's the reason that you might get called into an emergency room or asked to be seen a patient on the same day. Like this is not something mm -hmm. that we just let hang out for a few days. Right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. This is this has the potential to, since it's in the back part of your throat, it has the potential to spread into that prevertebral space, yeah. which is in the front, in front of your spine. And that area, unfortunately, does connect further inferiorly, mm -hmm. so it can spread to um, to more distant places than just the throat. Yeah, got it. And is it usually strep pharyngitis that causes this, or not necessarily? Not necessarily. It yeah. certainly can be a variety. Yeah, yeah. okay, not just strep throat. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Um, we have a young mom on Facebook who says she's nervous about cleaning the ears of her one-year-old. I think that's very intuitive parenting. Good, good job, mom. Um, he moves around a lot, and she's afraid the Q-tip might poke his eardrum. How do you advise parents to clean babies or young children's ears? Yes. The general old rule, nothing smaller than your elbow, is, is, is the main one that, yeah. that, that we still go by. And, mm -hmm. and the problem is, unfortunately, especially in kids, um, each year, you know, you see, you know, one or two folks that mm -hmm. were using Q-tips and they caused an eardrum perforation. Once in my eight-year career, I've seen, some, you know, unfortunately, someone that it went all through the eardrum Aww. and into the inner ear space. And in the end, it did give them what we call it, just a non-functional ear on that oh, side there. Man. So there is a, a lot of potential outcome. there. Yeah, yeah and, and it is very tempting, especially in younger uh -huh. children, because they just have such small ear canals. So it certainly does look like there's a lot of wax there. Mm -hmm. But ideally, I would I'd try to refrain, you know, I, I would advise against any kind of um, So no Q-tips. No Q-tips. Good, okay. But, <laughs> and if it's any reassurance, it, it is a little bit, that ear canal is a little bit of a slow motion mm -hmm. conveyor belt. So if you, you know, if you put a dot on the skin by the eardrum, it slowly will move out and the wax will come with that. So in general, for most folks, you don't have to do anything. Yeah. It'll clean itself. Yeah, wax is pretty normal. Yeah. Like a washcloth just in the outer part of the mm -hmm. canal, okay? Yeah. Absolutely, wet washcloth, and yeah. when it gets that far out, that should be good. Yeah, good. Okay, great question. Um, we have a woman from Esteline wanting to hear about Meniere's disease. What is it? What mm -hmm. causes it? Um, and how can it be treated? Sure. Yeah. So Meniere's disease is is one of the few diseases really where you have a lot of vacillating or, or changing symptoms as far as the okay. ear goes. It's most commonly 
um, characterized by a triad of symptoms, meaning hearing loss, ringing in the ears, and rotational dizziness symptoms, so mm. vertigo symptoms. And usually it's episodic, meaning it should last a couple hours, sometimes even up to a few days. And But few hours is really the most common presentation mm -hmm. you'll see. The, the, the patients in general have a history of one-sided, the hearing going up and down with these episodes. Mm -hmm. And the, by far the most debilitating portion of these is the dizziness. And mm -hmm. the natural progression of the disease if, is that over time the hearing in that ear does burn out, but the dizziness episodes in general become less and less severe. Oh, that's reassuring. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we have some treatments, and the main uh -huh. treatments are focused on, on diuretics. And Okay. Those are medicines that that um, that in the end, what they're doing in the inner ear is changing the electrolyte balance so that the episodes should become less frequent. Mm -hmm. Does it run in families? It can. Can it? Okay. Yeah. 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 But Otherwise, not not always the classic. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, can each generation, not only the classic dominant each yeah. generation. But if you're having recurrent episodes yep. of, the, of those types of symptoms, it might be Meniere's disease. Yep. Not, not uncommon, we see it. Sure. Um, we have a caller wondering why the tip of his tongue hurts when he eats or drinks. Tell us, Ooh. yeah, what, what can go wrong on the tongue that might cause that? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> there's, there's, there's probably a lot of possibilities that can, mm -hmm. can cause things like that. The most common issue, a lot of times you can have a little blocked taste bud. A lot of times if you look closely, you can see one of those little papilla or one of those yeah. things sticking out can be a little bit more mm -hmm. you know, inflamed in that area. Very rarely it can be you know, some trauma or something that's mm -hmm. occurring at night. Got it. Um, it, a lot of times uh, that's something you, you almost have to take a look at before yeah, you kind of can say, sure say that. Yeah, looking at it. But, okay, if it's, you know, a lot of those things would kind of come and go maybe within a few days or sure, a week. So if sure. it's lasting, probably worth getting looked at. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Okay. Um, we have a caller who asked about what causes a tickle in the right side of the nose, tongue, and lips, and how could that be fixed? Interesting, so sensation change nose, kind of over that side of the face. Lips Yeah. <laughs> and tongue. The one that's thrown me for a loop on yeah. that one is, is tongue more right. I mean meaning uh, yeah. yeah one of your nerves does control mm -hmm. can, a lot of your mid face here which would include your nose your lips mm -hmm. um, the tongue portion is throwing me that's atypical yeah yeah okay a little bit there all right for a loop so maybe <laughs> maybe get that checked out I yeah. suppose fine um, oh we have a caller from Yankton great another common question wondering how to prevent dry skin and dandruff in the ear do you see sure yeah. yes and that that certainly is a common problem because yeah. it leads to many other outer ear complaints, most commonly some outer ear infections, more prone sure. to swimmer's ear troubles there. Mm -hmm. And most of all, it's just an itchy problem, so mm -hmm. it's more bothersome for folks. So um, in general, it's something worth taking a look at mm -hmm. to, to make sure there's not an underlying fungal infection there. Mm -hmm. But many of the times, otherwise there's certain ointments that could help with it if we think it's primarily in skin condition more than an infectious process. Got it, got it. What else can happen? So we're talking about the outer ear mm -hmm. now, so the ear canal, so mm -hmm. we can have fungal infections. Mm -hmm. You can have dermatitis, right? Mm -hmm. Like psoriasis in the ear and exactly. stuff like that. What else can go wrong in, sure. uh, in that outer ear to cause irritation and sure. stuff? You mentioned yeah. swimmer's ear, yeah, the, swimmer's ear. Exactly, yeah. swimmer's ear. So that is one of the more common ones and that tends sure. to be more a bacterial infection. Mm -hmm. Swimmer's ear because it's common in swimmers and sure. that they get a lot of water in their mm -hmm. ear. And 
the, the ear canal really is a perfect area for bacteria and fungus to grow, meaning it's a warm, wet environment. Mm -hmm. It's connected to the outside. And a lot of times the bacteria that overgrow in that area can be things that are commonly found there, but sure. it's just a warm, wet environment. Mm -hmm. And then any kind of bacterial infection in there, unfortunately, is usually very painful and causes sure. a lot of swelling in that area there. The fungal ones, on the other hand, tend to be more itchy and cause more plugging of the ears. Got it. Great. Well, we have um, hearing loss on the rise. More and more people around the world can expect to experience at least some form of hearing loss during their lives. So what can be done about this common problem? Um, the World Health Organization estimates that there's 1.5 billion people globally with hearing loss. And due to uh, the rising population, that number will be 2.5 billion by the year 2030. There are different types of hearing losses. Some hearing losses are uh, temporary hearing loss due to maybe wax impaction or an infection of the middle ear. Um, other hearing losses are permanent due to uh, nerve damage. Hearing loss can be the um, result of the natural aging process, could be genetics. Uh, noise exposure is another big one that we see. Uh, there are also certain medications that can cause hearing loss. The first part of the hearing test is we just take a case history, sit down and talk about what's been going on, if you're noticing any hearing loss, or if you have specific complaints of pain or pressure or ringing in the ears. Um, the next thing we'll do is just a visual exam, which we call otoscopy. So we'll take a look in your ears, your ears uh, check nice the outer ear. After that, we do a pressure test, which tells us how well the eardrum is vibrating back and forth. Next, we put a little earplugs in your ears, and it's very easy. I always say it's much easier than going to the dentist. Uh, it's not painful. Yeah. It's just listening for beeps. Uh, we're looking for the softest sounds yep. that you can hear at each different frequency that we test. And yep. then we also do some speech testing to understand how well the brain is processing speech in quiet at a nice, comfortable level. And the other part of the test that we do is called bone conduction, and that just helps us determine what type of hearing loss you have. So getting back to the, is this a temporary hearing loss or is this permanent nerve damage? If the hearing loss is permanent nerve damage and there's no medical intervention that would help with the hearing loss, then we would want to talk about hearing aids to compensate for the permanent hearing loss that we know we can't cure. Hearing aids are different. It's not like glasses where you put them on immediately and things are perfect. Uh, hearing aids take some time to get used to. If you've had hearing loss for, let's say, five years or even two or three years, and all of a sudden we're giving your brain back some of the information that it's missing, it can take a while for the brain to get used to that sound again. Sometimes the sounds that we're giving the brain back are annoying sounds. They're screechy or very sharp or dull because it's usually a high frequency hearing loss. So it can take some time for the brain to adjust to hearing aids. I would say the biggest and most important is just an improvement in the quality of life for not only the patient, but for their family and friends. Uh, we're getting that person back in conversations so they're not missing out. Um, you know, there's also a lot of research that's just come out in the last couple of years that talks about how important treating your hearing loss is to uh, reduce the um, reduce the effects of cognitive decline and Alzheimer's and dementia that could be related to hearing loss.
Great topic. Lots of patients with hearing loss. Mm -hmm. um, tell, tell us a little bit about tinnitus. This is another thing that I have patients ask me sure. about all the time. So ringing in the ears, what sure. causes it? What can we do about it? Sure. I mean, the shorter answer is we really don't know very yeah. well exactly what causes it. So a lot of the workup relies on things that we know are associated mm -hmm. with it. So in reality, what we think causes it is some degree of, of inner ear issues. And mm -hmm. what it's most commonly associated with is hearing loss. So mm -hmm. any workup for ringing in the ears, really an audiogram or a hearing test is really the the mainstay of what to the, the first step mm -hmm. in that um, sometimes other things musculoskeletal issues in that area some jaw inflammation or even some neck muscle mm -hmm. inflammation can mimic and cause some ringing in the ears but usually it's a sign of some type of inner ear dysfunction there mm -hmm. there isn't and if you if, i always say if you google this you're going to see hundreds of different answers and that probably means that there's not one good answer mm -hmm. for it um, so Usually the, the, the treatment protocol is based on how much things bother patients. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, for most patients, it's more an annoyance or it's more bothersome at night. Mm -hmm. And in those cases, a lot of times, just adding some background noise, something simple, can make a big difference for patients. Mm -hmm. There's some association with big caffeine drinkers. So if you're drinking mm -hmm. a lot of caffeine, the, the ringing can be more prominent. Mm -hmm. and, and in general, then, you know, get to little higher level treatments. Um, hearing aids, for example, and yeah. since most patients with tinnitus have some form of hearing loss, mm -hmm. about 50% of patients that get hearing aids do find that with them in place, they are less bothersome. And also, newer hearing aid models also have some tinnitus maskers or things, mm -hmm. something you can activate. It's kind of like a noisemaker that helps block yeah. out those sounds there. And with those activated and, and functioning well, most patients really do quite well there. Now, there's a few patients that I see each year that you know, the, the, the tinnitus over, almost overtakes them there. Yeah. You know, they, they can't function, they can't work. It, it, and, and if all those other options fail, there is things that uh, certain psychologists can do what's called tinnitus retraining therapy. Mm. And they can give exercises to patients that, so far I've had, had good luck in my patients that, you know, I don't think there's anything that cures the tinnitus, but most of the patients that go through these processes would say, you know, it's still there, but it's not as bothersome it's as it was before. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, there's a little blurb about over-the-counter hearing mm -hmm. aids. Is this something that we're going to see more of? And what do you think about that? I think I think so. I think yeah. hearing loss is a really underserved problem in, yeah. in this country. I mean, if you look general data, don't don't quote me exactly, but you know, around 30, 30 million patients in yeah. this country have some need of hearing amplification, mm -hmm. and about ten million of them actually do have some. And so it, it is something where there's a there's a fair deal of I mean, quite frankly, you know, they can just be expensive. So there's yeah. a, a, a large impediment to, to entering into mm -hmm. that and, and, and amplifying that. And most of these patients are, are elderly and there's fixed income mm -hmm. there. So over-the-counter hearing aids, I think, does solve the problem of things being more easily accessible for mm -hmm. patients. You know, the, the big question is, is there one size that's going to fit all yeah. for these patients? I mean, if they're, unfortunately, if they're if they're not set up properly, are they going to function mm -hmm. well? Or if they're set up set up too loud, can they actually, you know, cause more problems mm -hmm. there? So, I, I think I think the spirit of things is is there, and I, I'm still learning myself yeah. more about, you know, how they will be programmed and how they will work. But I think the spirit is right. I mean, I think we need to help Improving patients exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Great. We have a lot of questions. Let's sure. get going with some of those. We have a caller wondering what causes blockages within the throat as they have a pouch that seems to fill when they swallow. 
Sure. What, there's a few things that could be, yes. but yeah, there's, um, there's some things that come to mind. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there, there's, there's two things there. The, mm -hmm. the basic one is actually truly having a pouch, and the most mm -hmm. common thing there is something called a Zenker's diverticulum, mm -hmm. and that's right at the upper part of your esophagus where food goes down from the back of your throat mm -hmm. to your stomach. There's, there can be an extra outpouching there. Now, that's something that commonly occurs in, mm -hmm. in older patients, and the classic symptom is I regurgitate my pills okay. hours after eating, not immediately afterwards, but hours after. That being said, I do see a fair deal of patients that come in with that complaint of, you know, I feel like there's something getting stuck there. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe there is an extra pouch. And a lot of times that also can be a sign of swelling in that upper throat mm -hmm. area there. And just that there's thickened phlegm. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you're eating something like bread or something that's um, a little more starchy, mm -hmm. you almost have to do that second yeah. swallow or drink something with it there. So a lot of times, you know, that would be worked up with an esophagram or a mm. swallow study, mm -hmm. or if you see an ear, nose, and throat, we would look down with yeah. a scope and see if there's any signs of inflammation there. Yeah, and a lot of the time, if I see someone with a complaint like that, I say, well, send you to the ENT mm -hmm. doc because they can just take a direct look, and mm -hmm. it's pretty easy in the mm -hmm. office, right, that you can look deeper into the throat. Yes, yeah. the zankers we can always see. Yeah. The zankers are just out of out of view there, but certainly we can see if there's inflammation or any there's just yeah. above that. Yeah, good. Um, we have a caller wondering what could cause swallowing issues in general. So that's a bigger question. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that that is 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 a good question. Mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> there's a wide you know in, in medicine you say there's it takes a, a wide lot differential. To swallow properly. Exactly. It takes a functioning brainstem and nervous system and musculature exactly. and no no anatomic problems. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. When you look at kids, it takes mm -hmm. them, you know. The large part of what they're learning at first is just the coordination of moving mm -hmm. food back and then um, eventually moving food down. So swallowing troubles really, really can be multifactorial. Yeah. A lot of times, you know, exactly nervous. Sometimes there can be swelling. You know, reflux is a common general one sure. that can mm -hmm. that can contribute to things. But but usually a swallowing problem in general is something you'd want to get a little bit more history on to, to fully um you know, try to help as well. Yeah, and probably we're gonna have to order some studies to figure mm -hmm. out the, the root of the problem mm -hmm. too. We have a few sinus questions. So sure. we have a caller from Alcester wondering what could cause continuous sinus drainage in a 70 year old man. So sure. what causes more sinus drainage? Sure. I mean, what, what, what are the common things that you see? Sure, yeah. and the big thing for me, and because it's certainly something that I see frequently, when, when patients say sinus drainage, is it all down the throat or is right. it also coming out of the front part of the nose sure. there? And historically, we've always thought that any kind of drainage of any sort is, is, is allergic or sinusitis. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, the more we're learning about things, if it's only going down the back, a lot of times we suspect, could there be some silent reflux or some mm -hmm. sort of heartburn or something mm -hmm. like that that's contributing to that as well? If we're talking about general anterior nasal drainage, which is called mm -hmm. rhinorrhea, mm -hmm. or nasal drainage, you know, certainly there can be a lot of things. A lot of times, if it's more on the clearer side, we mm -hmm. do suspect more allergic diseases. Mm -hmm. If we're looking more at the green-yellow side, certainly we wonder if there could be a, a chronic infection in that mm -hmm. area there. Mm -hmm. I see a lot of uh, pe people really getting up in age in their mm -hmm. 80s and 90s that have really watery discharge. Mm -hmm. What causes that? Sure. Yeah. The most common thing, especially if they don't have any history of allergies. Now, the truth is allergies can develop sure. at any time, could but, be allergies. but mm -hmm. commonly if there's no allergy history, the most common thing is something, the technical term is vasomotor rhinitis, mm -hmm. which is more a non-allergic rhinitis. And, and that's one of the things where there has been some growth recently in mm -hmm. your nose and throat. There's one spray that we use for that. And in general, if that spray works, there is a procedure you can do in mm -hmm. the office where it really is an overactive nerve in the back part of the nose that's Got causing it. this, mm -hmm. where you can either freeze or you can 
use electrical energy to ablate that area there. And that, that's something that the patients have tolerated overall very well, yeah. and they've gotten very similar results to the spray, but it's always patient dependent. You could say, hey, right. you can use the spray forever, or if you'd like to try this procedure, that's something that, that will work. So if it's, someone's really bothered by it, there mm -hmm. may be a cure though. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, what do you recommend for most of those allergic rhinitis, so kind of just that chronic thin sure. discharge? What, what are the best treatments that people can try before they see you? Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, the topical sprays are really the mainstay yeah. there. Um, they have huge advantage in that they can have higher concentrations, and most of those do stay topically in your nose. There's mm -hmm. always a little bit that does get absorbed, but you know, for those steroids, age two, four, depending on which you know mm -hmm. which which spray you're looking at, they're safe. Most common side effect in general is nosebleeds there, yeah. and the best single result you're going to get is from a nasal steroid. If you yeah. want to be, if it's getting you there but not completely mm -hmm. resolving things, a nasal antihistamine spray you okay. know works very well in combination mm -hmm. with the steroid. Yeah, nose sprays, which are all over the counter now. Absolutely. Um, we have a viewer on Facebook asking they that they get a lot of mucus buildup in their sinuses. What can help people like that if they have kind of chronic? Congestion and congestion. mucus, yeah. Sure. Congestion, you always start, the, the safe bet is that you always start with a nasal steroid yep. there. Mm -hmm. And the other things, and, and really what you're fighting here, whether you're fighting the chronic congestion or you're fighting, fighting infections there, the more we've learned about you know, chronic sinus troubles, the main factor that's that's predisposing these patients is chronic inflammation. Mm -hmm. Okay, we used to think sinus infection, oh, you're just having bad luck, you keep getting bugs from, mm -hmm. from your kids, from your family, but in reality, those folks that are more predisposed to it have chronic inflammation. So the mainstay is nasal steroids. Mm -hmm. Neti pot, sinus rinses, you're either a big fan or you hate it, but right, yeah. something to try, <laughs> and, and, and those all are very successful without being too invasive as far as decreasing the inflammation in your nose. Now, mm -hmm. In, is it always going to be the be-all, end-all, and yeah. you know, fighting nasal congestion? No, but there are other levels of things to do. Certainly, mm -hmm. some things are anatomic. Yeah. Um, some things do require surgical intervention, mm -hmm. whether that's, you know, straightening out the middle of your nose, the septoplasty, but also shrinking down the sidewall. So, even in patients that have allergies, we can shrink those areas mm -hmm. down, and the goal making as much space as we can. Now. There are no surgeries that are going to cure allergies for us. Obviously, that's right. a chronic inflammatory condition. But the goal with some of those surgeries is just to make more space. So when that swelling, you know, eventually mm -hmm. comes, you know, you can still drain. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Great. Exactly. Um, we have a caller wondering if there's a home remedy to get rid of excess earwax. So we're we're going to stay away from the Q-tips. Sure. Are there things that you do recommend? You recommend exactly. putting any drops in the ears or anything like that? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's that. Those are really that you can certainly use Debrox drops, mm -hmm. which are over-the-counter drops. Mm -hmm. They're kind of peroxide-based. You can also try some half-strength hydrogen peroxide okay. and do that as long as there's no hole in your ear. You've never had any ear surgeries or certainly mm -hmm. caveats to that. But okay. in general, if you've never had any you know, ear troubles before, those are mm -hmm. simple things you can do. Obviously, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of products out there, too. There's um, ear candling. Yeah. You know, I think our academy is somewhat strict on things because they've seen some folks that have had burns yeah. from that, but those right. are popular. Kay. There's even some, I haven't seen one of these, but uh, my patients have described this to me, some sort of suction machines that don't prevent it prevent it from going in too far, but yeah. um, so I... I <laughs> that mechanical stuff scares me a little bit, I guess. I agree, yeah, yeah okay. I agree. So, um, but um, mm -hmm. the, the main one I think is softening the wax yeah. if you're having trouble. Yeah. yeah, most people that actually have problems, it's because it gets hard and it exactly. doesn't come out like it normally does. Mm -hmm. I have some people who use like olive oil or mineral mm -hmm. oil and just put it in there at night. Those will work as well. Yeah, yeah okay. Um, we have a caller asking about a tumor from the neck and if there's a procedure that can remove it. 
Um, the answer is certainly sure. yes, but more information needed on where it is, yes. what type of tumor it is, yes. to know what to treat it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, a lot of times, I mean, other than, than imaging, if you know that you have the tumor, mm -hmm. the mainstay there a lot of times is a fine needle aspiration mm -hmm. biopsy, and that's just, you know, under some sort of radiographic guidance, whether it's with ultrasound or CT, mm -hmm. taking a little sample of those cells there, because um, some of these tumors may or may not be you know, treatable, you right. know, surgically. Some may be treatable with radiation or chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. And if you're suspecting more on, you know, something more like a lymphoma type of thing, mm -hmm. usually those sure. would require a full excision and not a needle biopsy. So right. uh, in general, we're looking at, at further workup for more something like that. Yeah. And some parts of the neck are pretty delicate. There's mm -hmm. a lot of blood vessels and mm -hmm. nerves that run through the neck. So the location matters for you Absolutely. guys too. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Good. We have a, a common type of vertigo called benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, or BPPV, which causes frequent dizziness and a spinning sensation in your head. A Brookings woman who had this problem felt much better after a simple maneuver with her physical therapist. Prairie Docs Carter Schmidt spoke with both of them about the process. Back in May of 2020, during the beginning of the pandemic, Kella Hogue started doing virtual yoga with a group of her friends over Zoom she started to become dizzy with some of the positions. After a couple sessions, I did not feel good. And I mean, I was nauseated and, and dizzy and I just couldn't seem to get things back to square one. Um, and I was talking to my son one day and kind of explaining to him how I couldn't look over my shoulder or lean down to tie my shoe. More simple tasks became harder. It's hard to drive a car because you try to look over your shoulder to see, you know, to change lanes and just immediately you're like, whoo, whoa, I am dizzy. Or you, you know, like lean down to zip up your boot or something like that and then, you know, you got to sit back in the chair for a little bit and kind of get your bearings again. Her physical therapist, Chuck McCullough, is her next door neighbor. I talked to Chuck, we call it over the fence medicine and um, he said, yeah, you have vertigo. So um, because it was the pandemic and they were really trying to limit people in the clinic to like, you know, more urgent procedures or whatever, he said, you know, let me just come over to your house. Cala had a very specific type of vertigo. Uh, we call it BPPV, benign paroxysmal positional vertigo. And the paramount symptom for her, it was a sudden onset. Uh, she had this intense dizziness, the room spinning, dizziness, nausea, and she had it when she turned her head. Symptoms, McCullough says, are caused by crystals clogging canals in your ears. And when they get clogged, we have to unclog them and we choose this procedure called the Epley procedure. And what I did was, uh, it didn't take very much time, but once we ran through the procedure, one, two, three, go. Keep your eyes open. Uh, it is a type of thing that should have very quick results. Perfect, eyes open. The next day, she was 100%, did fine. The procedure involves simple, specific movements to alleviate the problem. And the first time I went through all three procedures, I was so dizzy and nauseated that I, I couldn't even stand up by myself. Not nearly as bad that second time around. Then I went back to sleep for a couple hours and then Chuck said I had to do it again about nine o'clock that night. And so then I did it again that night. And the next morning when I woke up, I didn't have vertigo.
So vertigo. Vertigo is miserable for people, and often it is this benign mm -hmm. cause. And so if, if it's pretty classic that, it worries your physician pretty little, but it can be miserable for patients. What? So they talked about crystals in the ear canal. Tell us, like, why do people get crystals in their, in their not in the ear canal, I should say, in the inner ear? Yep. How does that happen, and how does sure. this cause vertigo? Sure. Yeah. The, the most common cause that we kind of definitively know is, yeah. is usually it's a result of some head trauma. Okay. It doesn't have to be anything, you know, too dramatic, mm -hmm. but that is the most common mechanism along with no real history of any trauma, you know, sure. or, or it just started out yeah. of nowhere. So, mm -hmm. um, and in general, the classic symptom there is hey, rolling over in bed seems mm -hmm. to be really the most common one. So, you know, you roll over and then you continue to get the spins and, and usually it lasts about a few seconds, sometimes even up to a minute. Mm -hmm. But whenever we have that history, usually we are pretty, pretty, pretty happy, meaning not that you have it, but it's right. one of the things in, in vertigo that we can actually help. Meaning yeah. A lot of vertiginous symptoms a lot of times are very difficult to mm -hmm. treat and especially imbalance problems as we get yeah. older are, are so multifactorial, meaning it's true your inner ear isn't working mm -hmm. as well as it used to, but it's also true your legs aren't as strong and your right. nerves and, mm -hmm. and your muscles aren't as strong. So, you know, there's a lot of different aspects to imbalance as we get older mm -hmm. um, and, and that's where they become harder and harder to treat and, and a lot of times the, the physical therapists do play a role. Mm -hmm. I mean, they can do the Epley maneuver there, but, mm -hmm. but a lot of times they can also work on strengthening yeah. core muscles and, and compensatory m maneuvers um, so that patients feel more stable. Yeah, for balance, great. We'll get back to the, uh, the questions. We have a few questions about things like phlegm and post-nasal drip, which mm -hmm. we've talked a little bit about. Um, t how about allergies? Sure. Is, I mean, allergies probably a common cause. This time of year is mm -hmm. a great time to talk about allergies. Do you recommend people have allergy testing or do you just recommend people kind of do the typical treatments and see how if they get better most of the time? In general, most of the time we start with the the, yeah. the, the, the so over-the-counter treatments yeah. and generally one of the, easy you know, Claritin Allegra Zyrtec, yeah. one of the later generation mm -hmm. histamines and then the nasal sprays there. Mm -hmm. there, there are some um, uh, prescription medications that we can use as well mm -hmm. and, and usually reserve allergy testing if those methods fail sure. meaning we think either their allergies are so strong that mm -hmm. we want to you know find out what they are maybe there's something that we can avoid but also it, it does open up the option of of this category of immunotherapy which mm -hmm. commonly colloquially is called allergy shots sure. yeah sure. And in general there, there, there tend to be two types of, of treatments for that. The more European model mm -hmm. is sublingual, so drops under the tongue. Mm -hmm. And then the more North American model is, is allergy shots. And mm -hmm. it is a big time commitment there. Usually you're looking at shots weekly for three to five years. Mm -hmm. About two thirds of patients do get better, you know, when they are taking the shots mm -hmm. there. So that's usually where reserve allergy testing, unless there are certain situations where well, it's usually when there's a discussion between within a family and it's a certain pet or something that wants to get <laughs> sure. tested, but, but otherwise it usually, or something specific, you know, in the yeah, garden or around that, that could, they want you to could avoid. Yeah. yeah. For most people though, doing a trial of the nasal steroid spray, mm -hmm. whether you think this is allergies or some other reason for congestion, really safe and easy way. And for most people, mm -hmm. it'll work really well. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. We have a viewer wondering how common bronchial cleft cysts are. Sure. So, yeah, very specific question. <laughs> and if the exact incidents, I, do, I couldn't give you a good answer. Mm -hmm. They are generally very rare. Um, th 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 there are uh, multiple types of these. Um, and th it is not the most common thing. The, the classic 
symptom is a lateral neck mass in, okay. in kids and certainly mm -hmm. it's something that can pop up later in life and it's not that it wasn't there, it's that sure. it's become infected or inflamed mm -hmm. and, and has presented itself mm -hmm. in a later stage. But most of the time when we're doing these surgeries, and in my patients at least, they're usually in their late teens, early 20s there, but okay. some kids can get them, at, at, have them at younger ages and remove them. Got it. Um, tell us about a deviated septum. Sure. When does that cause problems sure. and when do you do something about it? Absolutely. Yeah. So the, just to review the nasal septum, as I mentioned yeah. earlier, is the mid portion of your nose mm -hmm. there. And the truth is in the Caucasian population, probably 80% of folks have some degree of nasal mm -hmm. septal deviation. And what the main symptoms that we're looking at for nasal septation is nasal obstruction. And okay. a lot of times we want that to correlate on the side that has the nasal septal mm -hmm. deviation. and and if there is a strong correlation with that, then it is certainly is a good option to straighten that septum out there. Mm -hmm. um, usually that's a surgical procedure. It's at, well, it is a surgical procedure, mm -hmm. excuse me. <laughs> it's outpatient, yeah. um, meaning you go to the hospital, you go to sleep, straighten things out. Probably about 80% of folks feel like they're breathing much better after mm -hmm. that. Great. Um, we have a viewer who's been having problems with vocal cord prolapse and dysfunction after having COVID. They're wondering if it's common for many people who, who have had COVID or if there's other, other causes for those vocal cord problems. Vocal cord dysfunction. Oh, um, yeah. So vocal cord dysfunction, um, it, it's, a, it's a somewhat general term with their specific sure. diagnoses within that. So, yeah. um, the most common one, and I haven't seen it after COVID, is is, is, is paradoxical vocal mm -hmm. cord motion, meaning when you're trying to breathe in and, and all of a sudden the vocal cords will will snap shut. Mm -hmm. um, the, the mainstay of treatment, if that's the type that, that we're talking mm -hmm. about here, generally is speech therapy and mm -hmm. exercises mm -hmm. there. A lot of these post-viral or ir irritation ones, you'd hope that there was some, you know, some sort of temporary injury and that it's something that could recover yeah. over several months but mm -hmm. obviously after the post you know with the covid things we're learning so many things yeah. just and how they're progressing and time will tell for a lot of them there but if it is paradoxical vocal cord motion which is the mm -hmm. type of dysfunction that we have speech therapy does yeah. usually is the mainstay yeah good um, we have a viewer on facebook with several small thyroid nodules when do we order biopsies for thyroid nodules Good question. Um, <laughs> I usually have to look it up. So, <laughs> so yeah. So, in the end, the, the ultrasound is really the main test yeah. for thyroid nodules. Mm -hmm. And over time, we had a, historically we had a very simple system: one centimeter biopsy them. And then we really found that we were biopsying too many of these, which was Got leading it. to more surgeries, more mm -hmm. interventions. And we thought there could be a better way to do that. Mm -hmm. So, there are newer guidelines out. And there's a number of factors that we look at when we're going to biopsy a thyroid nodule. It has to do with the size, calcifications, blood flow, mm -hmm. you know, certain things. So most of the ones that are under 1.5 centimeters or 15 millimeters, mm -hmm. we rarely do need to biopsy if you look mm -hmm. at those guidelines there. Yeah. So if they're smaller, usually not, but mm -hmm. the, the ultrasound that, that was ordered should give some idea whether it's indicated or not. Yeah, yeah, but it, it certainly is common to have thyroid mm -hmm. nodules and not have a biopsy recommended because it's very, very unlikely for them to be anything but a benign nodule. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Um, viewer is wondering how common it is for people to have sinus surgeries to need another surgery. So is, is that a common path that ends up people having multiple sinus surgeries? Maybe it depends on... Yeah, it depends a little bit yeah. on what the, what the pathology is mm -hmm. of things. Now certainly, it, of all the surgeries that we do, that is one of the more common ones that, that can need further interventions. And really it has to do with, with two factors. One, the most common ones that need 
repeat surgery are ones that have nasal polyposis. So okay. nasal polyps are products of chronic inflammation mm -hmm. there. So there's a lot of things that are contributing to getting that point for nasal polyps. Mm -hmm. And really when you're doing the surgery, you're not curing the underlying problem, which is inflammation. So mm -hmm. a lot of times patients that have nasal polyposis may need multiple surgeries in their lifetime there. Mm -hmm. Even the patients that don't have nasal polyps, really the underlying problem is some degree of mm -hmm. inflammation in their nose there. And, and many times it's, it's common that, that one or two sinuses may may act up again mm -hmm. you know, over the time. So mm -hmm. sinus surgery having repeated is certainly something that can happen. Mm -hmm. Much more higher likelihood with nasal polyps. Gotcha. Not necessarily because of a failure of the first procedure. Right. Just right. because it's the underlying problem, people Ex will tend to grow more polyps or Exactly. Whatever. Okay. Exactly. Um, we have a, another sinus question. A viewer wondering what a sinus fungal ball is. Is it real or is it just internet misinformation? I like your skepticism, but it's real, right? <laughs> it <laughs> is real. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, sinus mycetoma is the technical <laughs> term. So what that really is is, and and that really is a. It's not the classic sinus where we're dealing with chronic inflammation there. It's mm -hmm. almost more a bad luck issue where some sort of fungal element got into a sinus. And just mm -hmm. like the outer ear canal when it's wet, it's a warm, wet environment. And then it's usually isolated to one sinus and mm -hmm. the, 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 the fungus just grows and, and lives there happily. And, mm -hmm. and in general, the main symptom is pressure and some purulent drainage on one side there. Unfortunately, there's no medicines that usually mm -hmm. treat this very well. It's usually a surgically sure. treatable gotta disease. Gotta get it out of there. Gotta get it out, gotta yeah. clean it out. Mm -hmm. Luckily, the success rates usually are very high of treating it surgically, mm -hmm. but um, it does exist. But I always tell my patients too, when I think suspect a fungal ball, don't Google fungal sinusitis because <laughs> that's a much more invasive disease. Got um, it, but, some differences yeah. there. We've just got a minute or two left. Sure. We've got a caller with a very thready, low volume voice. It has been recommended that she have a surgical procedure. Can you explain what that might be? Oh, that, 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 that one's a little bit harder. Yeah. Without actually seeing what the vocal cords look like, it, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's very hard to say there mm -hmm. um, uh, what the pathology is. Okay. Um, we have a caller wondering what could cause excessive saliva or more thicker or uh, stringy saliva. Maybe it's not excess saliva. Maybe it's yeah. actually a, a, a different problem. Yeah, I mean, that, that one's hard too. I mean, the mm -hmm. first time with stringy saliva, you always... You know, you always quickly just review, you know, hydration and make sure that they're more hydrated. The mm -hmm. the the more dehydrated they are, certainly the saliva can get thicker and it can even cause some problems yeah. in infection and, and what yeah. we call sludge within in, in the salivary ducts, which is just mm -hmm. really thick saliva. Um, I don't I don't know if I have a better answer right there. Depends on the actual problem. Exactly. But sometimes the vocal cords can have um, an excess structure there, or sometimes mm -hmm. they're just not functioning well as muscles, right? Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, okay, exactly. great. Um, well, we had a lot of questions tonight. We're sorry we didn't get to everybody's, but thanks so much for all of your calls. The winner of our drawing tonight is Mike from Alcester. Thank you, Mike, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you. We'll be back after this. Good evening and welcome to On Call with the Prairie Doc. This episode begins our 19th season and sadly our first without the original Prairie Doc, Dr. Rick Holm. We will work hard to live up to the quality and sincerity that you have come to expect from this program. Joining us tonight in studio is Dr. Kelly Evans-Hollinger, Remotely via Zoom is Dr. Deb Johnston, and remotely via Skype is Dr. Andrew Ellsworth. 
We invite you to join us in respecting Dr. Holmes' wishes as we continue his legacy. We hope that you, our loyal audience, will continue to watch the show, listen to the radio program and podcast, and read our newspaper articles. The torch has been passed, and I, along with the other Prairie Docs and our guests, accept it humbly and graciously. From Babe Ruth to John Wayne, Americans have seen chewing tobacco in popular culture for over a century. Spitting chew has been a trademark of cowboys and professional athletes alike, and chewing tobacco use continues at high rates in the United States. In 2018, a survey showed 2.4% of American adults used smokeless tobacco, with snuff or snooze pouch use on the rise and chewing tobacco on the decline. Though smokeless tobacco use is not associated with lung cancer like smoking is, it has its own set of potential dangers. First, smokeless tobacco does contain nicotine, causes nicotine addiction, and thus can be very difficult to quit. Chewing tobacco can wreak havoc on a person's teeth and gums. It causes tooth discoloration, dental cavities, tooth loss, and recession of the gums, sometimes requiring oral surgery. Smokeless tobacco is a major risk factor for cancer of the oral cavity and throat. Smoking cigarettes also increases the risk of this type of cancer. Cancer of this region can be devastating partly because its treatment may result in the inability for a patient to use their mouth, throat, and vocal cords. A person who uses or has used smokeless tobacco, as well as current and former smokers, should discuss that with their primary care provider, as well as their dentist and dental hygienist, as those professionals can perform thorough oral and neck exams as part of their regular care. Any abnormality found should be investigated more thoroughly. Another crucial note is that many oral head and neck cancers are also associated with human papillomavirus or HPV infection. If you are on the fence about getting your children or yourself, if eligible, vaccinated for HPV, this disease is another excellent reason to do so. The iconic Babe Ruth, who chewed tobacco and smoked cigarettes, died prematurely of throat cancer at age 53. Major League Baseball finally prohibited the use of smokeless tobacco in 2016. If you use smokeless tobacco and are ready to quit, the advice is similar to that for quitting smoking. First, make a plan and talk to people who can help hold you accountable. Get rid of all stashes of tobacco at your home, workplace, and vehicle. Consider use of nicotine replacement therapy, such as patches or gum, or prescription medication, which may make kicking your nicotine addiction a little easier. Finally, if you aren't successful this time, re-gear your plan and try again. It will absolutely be worth it. Thank you to our guest, Tom, for volunteering his time to help us learn more about ears, noses, and throats. And to you, our viewers, please join us next week, May 5th, for a very special episode celebrating our 20th season. Now, a quick update regarding our Healing Words Foundation board member, Dr. Ken Bartholomew and his kayak challenge. You may recall last fall, Dr. Bartholomew completed his kayak voyage on the Missouri River from the North Dakota border to the Nebraska border, raising more than $182,000 in donations. 
Inspired by your support, Dr. B decided to extend his journey from the Nebraska border near the Fort Randall Dam to the Iowa border at Sioux City. This week, he paddled 51 miles and has only 18 miles to go. To make a donation, go to prairiedoc.org and click on the donate button or mail your donation to post office box 752 in Brookings. Be sure to include the word kayak with your much appreciated gift. Thank you and bon voyage, Dr. B. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. So from all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, as we celebrate our 20th season of truthful, tested, and timely medical information, until next time, stay healthy out there, people. year. We will be looking back over the 20 seasons of truthful, tested, and timely medical information, and of course, our inspiration and founder, Dr. Rick Holm, the original Prairie Doc. It is a 20th season celebration. Next time, On Call with the Prairie Doc. We all want our friends, neighbors, and fellow South Dakotans to have the ability to make appropriate decisions about their health care. To do so, they need access to information from reliable sources, like our Prairie Docs and their guests. Hello, I'm Stephanie Herseth Sandlin, and I serve on the Volunteer Board of Directors for the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3 founded by Rick and Joni Holm. This year, we celebrate the 20th season of Prairie Doc programs, which are so helpful and important for all of us especially for those who choose to live in more rural communities in South Dakota and neighboring states. Truthful, tested, timely medical information for 20 seasons and beyond. We can do it with your help. Please consider a personal or corporate gift. Go to prairiedoc.org and click on the donate button today. Thank you. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by. Avera is a proud sponsor of On Call with the Prairie Doc on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Peer District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, 
Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swiftel Communications. Thank you.